You may have noticed already that the theme of this retreat seems to be kindness. And it's not as though us as teachers got together and said, let's just keep talking about kindness. It's just what naturally comes out as we're creating this field of metta together. And I I really wonder whether we should just change the definition of metta to just kindness. Drop the loving part. That can seem a little too challenging at times. But kindness, I think, is a beautiful quality. But in some ways, it can seem a little mundane. You know, just simple kindness. There's no Nobel Prize for kindness. I haven't noticed many awards being given or Hollywood stars or whatever just for someone being kind. But if you think about what's actually happening in that act of kindness... It's quite huge, all the beautiful qualities that are being expressed in an act of kindness. Of course, there's caring, there's compassion, there's empathy, there's consideration, um, there's generosity. There's even a little bit of restraint and renunciation because we're letting go of self-centeredness to actually offer something to someone else. So these are all beautiful and profound qualities that we cultivate on the path just through being kind. And I think if you could, when you leave this retreat and you go home and tell people you spent your time just learning to be kind, that would be a profound thing to be able to say. Because we see as we do this practice that we can't force love. I've already said, you know, there's no meta switch. You can't just turn it on, um, that kind of love. Love develops out of caring, connection and empathy has to be, you know, and maybe you've seen that a little bit with the neutral person today, someone you'd barely considered, you start bringing them into your heart and mind and you're like, oh, I wonder how they're doing now. And the the love starts to develop. I love this practice of the neutral person. The person I often work with is someone who used to work at our local supermarket but she doesn't anymore. She hasn't for a while, but every now and then I'll see her somewhere else in the hardware store. And it's like, oh, there she is. You know, I wonder how she's doing. And of course, she has no idea even who I am, I'm sure. But it's like, as I think someone said, a, a secret kind of love. And even happiness is not completely in our control. I think we can cultivate it. We can, we can incline towards it. And I think we can definitely create the conditions for more happiness. Um, but not necessarily able to just decide to be happy. But I think we can choose to be kind more often than we think. The Dalai Lama has this great uh, quote. He says, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. (laughs) And he also says, when we feel love and kindness towards others, it not only makes others feel loved and cared for, but it helps us to develop inner happiness and peace. Again, that sense that kindness brings along with it these beautiful qualities. And on another retreat, as I was again talking about kindness, someone mentioned to me this commencement speech that George Saunders, who's an American writer, gave at Syracuse University. And it's a little long, so I won't read his whole commencement retreat. But he's singing our song. He starts off talking about what he regrets and, you know, the things of life, the adventures and misadventures. Yet I don't regret those. But he said, here's something I do regret. He goes on to talk about a young girl who moved in his school in seventh grade. She was shy and awkward and people picked on her and he didn't stand up for her. He says, why do I regret that? Why 42 years later am I still thinking about that? So here's something I know to be true although it's a little corny and I don't quite know what to do with it. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. And he goes on to talk about this and says, you know, why aren't we kinder? What's that? He said, here's what I think about why we aren't kinder. Each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. These are, one, We're central to the universe. That is, our personal story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, really. We're separate from the universe, and we're permanent. Think about what he's saying. Now, we don't really believe these things, he says, but we believe them viscerally. 
And the second million dollar question is, how do we become more loving? He says, so let me say this, there are ways. You already know that because in your life there have been high kindness periods and low kindness periods, and you know what inclined you towards the former and away from the latter. Education is good, immersing ourselves in a work of art, good, prayer is good, meditation is good a frank talk with a dear friend, establishing ourselves in some kind of spiritual tradition, recognizing there have been countless really smart people before us who have asked the same questions <laughs> and left answers for, behind answers for us. Because kindness, it turns out, is hard. It starts out all rainbows and puppy dogs and expands to include, well, everything. One thing is in our favor. Some of this becoming kinder happens naturally with age. It might be a simple matter of attrition. As we get older, we come to see how useless it is to be selfish, how illogical, really. We come to love other people and therefore counter-instructed in our own counter-instructed in our own centrality. We get our butts kicked by real life and people come to our defense and help us. And we learn that we're not separate and don't want to be. We see people near and dear to us dropping away and are gradually convinced that maybe we too will drop away. Someday, a long time from now, most people as they age become less selfish and more loving. I think this is true. The great Syracuse poet Hayden Carruth said in a poem written near the end of his life that he was, quote, mostly love now. So he says, my wish for you as you grow older is that yourself will diminish and you will grow in love. You will be replaced by love. If you have kids, that will be a huge moment in your process of self-diminishment. You won't care what happens to you as long as they benefit. But he goes on to say, you know, all of the things you might want to do as a success in life, the real thing is the gradual process of becoming kinder and more loving. And since that's what life is about, hurry up, speed it along, start right now. Do all the other things, the ambitious things, etc. do whatever you do, but as you do, to the extent you can, err in the direction of kindness. Wise words from him, err in the direction of kindness. And he's talking about choosing kindness, choosing love, Sound familiar? You know, it's what we're programming and conditioning ourselves to do here. And it's so powerful. So many people I talk to today just feeling the ways that was working in them, the knots it was untying, the, the, the new self it was revealing that was more loving and accepting and kind. Because the far enemy of kindness is judgment and criticism and harsh speech. And that, unfortunately, is a very common experience for most of us, especially the internal world of judgment and criticism and harshness, where we're relentlessly comparing and judging ourselves and others, the inner and the outer experience. And this is the source of so much uh, the pervasive sense of isolation, of separation, of disconnection, of fear and contraction, this tendency of mind that so many of us live with. And I love this piece from Ram Dass, a great uh, American sage. He says, when you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all these different trees, and some of them are bent, and some of them are straight, and some of them are evergreens, and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree and you allow it. You appreciate it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light, so it turned that way. And you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. The minute you get near humans, you lose all that. And you are constantly saying you're to this, or I'm to this, or not enough that. The judging mind comes in. And so, and so I practice turning people into trees which means appreciating them just the way they are. Great advice. Turn them into trees. But I think we also need to turn ourselves into trees and just see, ah, we're the way we are because of the conditions of our life.
And we're doing the work we need to do to understand and, and transform those patterns that are a little bent and crookedy. But we are the way we are. This is such a huge area for our practice, is kindness and acceptance towards ourselves, towards ourself. I see so much that this is the biggest source of suffering for most people. And the ironic thing about it is it's actually the source of suffering we can do the most about. There's so many conditions we can't change. They're impersonal, they're out there in the world. But the, the way we treat ourselves, our own inner dialogue, that we can work with. That's what this practice is all about. And it can seem, unfortunately, that this voice, this judging voice, this critical voice, actually gets amped up on steroids on retreat. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually think that's true. I think just in the silence and we become more sensitive, we're noticing it more. But we really get to see it on retreat, right? And it's painful. I think we also see it more because it's in such a direct contrast to the wishes that we're cultivating for ourselves. You know, as we say, may I be happy? And there's this na 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 It's counterproductive. But most of us have this running commentary on experience, right? Should do more of this, what about this, what do I do now, didn't do that, you know, watch out there, more of this, less of that, go here, don't do that. You know that voice? The story of me, as George was saying, is, you know, center of the universe, the center of the film we're creating, where we're, you know, the central role, the heroine or the hero, we're directing it, we're acting in it, you know, we produce it, we put all the props together and the outfits, the makeup, the hair, you know, we do it all. And then we critique it, right? Where the, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, 32%, you know. <laughs> 16% today, you know, we do it all. So this is what our inner dialogue is so much about, telling the story of me. You probably heard this line, it's an old joke, where there's two people on a first date, and you know, you're meant to kind of tell the person who you are and a bit about yourself. And so this one person goes on and on and on and on and on and on with their story. Finally, they stop and they say, that's enough about me. So tell me, what do you think about me? And in that inner commentary, are you projecting what people are thinking about you, right? As you're doing your walking, it's like, oh, do they notice how slowly I'm, you know? <laughs> got my good yogi clothes on today, you see, you know, they're just the right amount of stretch and, you know, whatever. whatever. The mind, it has no shame, you know, admit it, it has no shame. Unfortunately, you know, we can laugh at it, but for most of us, this inner commentary has a tinge or a stream, or a flood of negativity. It's looking for what's wrong. And it's doing this by assessing how we're doing and constantly comparing ourselves to others, often finding deficiency. I know that I can talk about this, I was going to say so well, well that's a judgment, but only because I know this tendency of mind. It was so painful for me and, and so much contraction and fear around it. So I did a lot of work in this area. I read books on it, did long meta retreats. And I also did a workshop and read a book by this man called Byron Brown, who's a student of um, A.H. Almas, who founded the Diamond Heart School over in um, Berkeley, the Diamond Approach. And it was really interesting for me to actually go to a workshop on judging and just talk about it with people who obviously shared the same characteristic and really work with it. It was really revealing to me. And his book is called Soul Without Shame. I also found very helpful. And he says this, I'll read a lot from his book because I found it very helpful in understanding this patterning, but he treats it as a spiritual issue and practice, not just something that's psychological. He says, judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is, it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. 
Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And I think this is key. We sometimes think, oh, well, if I could just get rid of that part of myself, I could start on my spiritual practice, or we feel kind of deficient in a way, and we want to you know, move on beyond that. This is the spiritual practice. Understanding and working with this tendency of mind, it's essential. And especially to do it with care and love, not aversion and let's get rid of this. And metta practice is one of the great tools for doing that. You can perhaps have a sense if this practice is new for you, that that might be so. For those of you that have been here a number of times, again, talking to you today, it was just heart-opening to hear the stories of transformation. I was so touched by what I heard today from people just saying, this, this is opening a part of me, healing a part of me, changing a part of me that I thought was stuck or always going to be painful. So metta is huge because the heart of metta is acceptance. Acceptance of ourselves, literally every part of ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, who we are in the world, acceptance of our experience and acceptance of others. So this is the field that we're working in on a retreat like this. So we begin this practice with metta for self because it's so essential. And we've been encouraging you all to find your way to that. Again, you can't, you know, force this. I'm just going to go there and love myself until I'm... Doesn't work as far as I've seen. You do it gradually, gently, you know, with this great care and tenderness because we want this for ourselves. We want this capacity. And so we, we start to really establish that we do want to be happy. We care about ourselves. May I be happy? May I be safe? To be able to say that over and over again. You say it long enough, you'll start to mean it. That's what happens. And this is a natural and valid human wish. It's not selfish. Because the more we can transform these hearts and minds so they're loving and accepting and kind, we bring that into the world, into our relationships, into our work, into whatever we do. But it has to start here. And so just the contrast between these wishes that we keep marinating in and then this judging critical mind, you get to kind of step back, as Byron Brown first said, often it's so much a part of how we relate to ourselves, we don't realize we're doing it. Sometimes we can, but it's just so automatic. But as you steep in these phrases, you can't help but separate from this voice, this judging voice, and see it for what it is, and see the pain um, that it brings, and that it doesn't bring happiness. As much as it kind of is in there trying to do something positive, and I'll talk more about that, um, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And so... We work with the judging mind in this practice, in our mindfulness practice and in the metta practice. They're both essential for this transformation to begin because the first thing we have to do is see them, is be aware of them. We cannot begin to work with or transform something until it's in the field of awareness, until we know it, see it connect with it. That's the functioning of mindfulness. And then the metta, well, I'll say, and then the mindfulness can actually begin to relate with them for what they actually are. Judging thoughts are just a blip of energy in the mind. It takes a certain shape, and it's very familiar, but again, if you've ever done the the practice of mindfulness of thoughts, you start to see after a while, it's just has a beginning, a middle, and end, and we can actually relate to it just like the sound of a bird or the coming on and off of the cooling system. We don't have to get so involved, but it starts with mindfulness, and we start to see that thoughts have the power that we choose to give them. If we jump on them, land in them, hold to them, identify with them, there's the world. 
and all of its hopes and fears and sense of separation. If the judging thought comes up and we just see, oh, there's that thought again, like a dandelion, like the fog diminishing. And then Byron Brown goes on to say, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside yourself with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. Because that's the role the judge plays sometimes. You're doing okay, you know, but it also gets distorted, as we'll see. So as we practice, whether it's metta or mindfulness, the process is somewhat similar. The mindfulness just kind of, I mean, the metta just kind of turns up the heat on this process. We start to see and feel, as I said, we begin get more sensitive these stories that we're telling ourselves of lack and limitation, of deficiency, of lack of self-worth or self-acceptance. Old memories can come up of hurt or places where, you know, we lost it or we ran and hid or we struck out out of fear. This is what happens so often on retreat. How we open to those experiences is key. And that's where the kindness comes in, the self-compassion that we've been talking so much about. Can we feel those emotions in the body, not have to run and hide from them, not push them away with aversion, but actually feel with tenderness? And that's the, the, the way that they actually start to unravel and unwind because we're not giving them the, the power that fear gives them or aversion gives them. We actually let them move through in this gentle way. And we start to understand, as Byron Brownstein's saying, look at how, or, or even Ramdas, you know, see the causes and conditions of this particular mind and heart. You know, it's not, we didn't just appear at age 33 or 54 or whatever. All of these causes and conditions that went into the, the, this experience and we start to bring acceptance. This is how things are. My life and these experiences did happen in this way. Acceptance. We did the best we could to deal with those difficult experiences with the tools we had, with the wisdom we had, with the strength or the understanding that we had, which often is not much, you know, when we were very young or confused or frightened. So we did the best we could. And again, this is why the forgiveness practice is so key. We really see we need to shift our relationship to those experiences because unless we do, they bind us. And particularly in what I'm talking about tonight, forgiveness for ourselves, for ways we perhaps hurt or harmed others, but even more how we've hurt or harmed ourselves. Really seeing that there's a possibility of shifting that. Temple may have used this line, we often uh, use it about forgiveness. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. How much time do we spend in the woulda, coulda, shoulda? You know, the machinations of trying to rearrange what's gone. You know, and as Again, my friend Carol Wilson will say, gone back with the pharaohs and the dinosaurs, you know, dead as the dinosaurs. Your ability to change what happened yesterday. But what we can change is how we relate to those experiences. And again, you know, forgiveness is not something you can force, you're not like you have to do it, but to even hold the possibility that you want to forgive or you intend to forgive when you're ready at some point loosens the grip of those past experiences. And so it changes how we relate to the past and through that actually changes the past because it no longer binds us in the same way. So this process can be quite deep and profound. But how did we how did this judging voice come into being? You know, why did it become 
such a familiar friend and have the flavor that it does. Again, this is from Byron Brown. As children, we had to learn social norms to get along, develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it can become overactive, overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. We, We can come to see that now this voice is not so helpful and that limits and controls us. Because the basic message of this judging voice is that I'm not good enough and people won't like me if they know what I'm really like. You know that hidden part? We kind of have the social acceptable part and then that part we feel that no one would love or accept. And it often, the double whammy is, you'll never change. You haven't got what it takes. This This is all you can be. And we just collapse around that if that's the message um, that we believe. Again, from Byron Brown. The, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides directions as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. At last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing within you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge, and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need the judging voice until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, The judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So, again, there's no blame in this. Not like we should have done something different. All due to understandable causes and conditions but we're now in a different place in our capacity to relate with this tendency, if this is something that's strong for you. And so we look, you know, understanding how it gets, got conditions is a, a big part of understanding how to decondition it, both in taking the reactivity or the blame or the judging about the judging away, because that can just solidify it, but really to help us unwind this patterning. As he said, we need to find a source of this kind of guidance from our wise voice, not this judging, critical voice. So in the workshop that I did with Brian Byron Brown, he had us do what's called a repeating question, where you get into a dialogue and you ask one question over and over again of your partner, and they have to answer. And what happens in that is you get to deepen into... Um, what's underneath the superficial answers to the question. And the question he had us ask is, what's right about judging? Because we do it for a reason. We're not completely crazy. We're not completely neurotic. 
we've learned to do this for a reason, right? It had, had, had or has a benefit for us. So what is it? How did it serve us in the past? How is it serving us now if it's still operating? And how does it not serve us now? These are really helpful inquiries to do for yourself. What I've seen is the judge has what I call a hook in it. There's some kind of pleasure, even in the most negative and critical judging. Otherwise, we wouldn't perpetuate it. In Buddhism, we call it Vedana, the pleasant, and it's a pleasant sensation. And it's so immediate, we don't even often realize that's what it is. But there's that little bit of, yes, you know. And the, it can, you know, the, the, the clear one is, you know, the self-righteous I'm right, they're wrong, or indig- self-righteous indignation. How dare they? You know that? <laughs> but it can happen on all the levels of this judging voice. So what, what is some of the hooks? Clearly, the judge lets us know what's right and wrong, right? And we're usually, usually on the side of right. Occasionally, not occasionally, you know, we can turn that around and be always wrong. But we know what's right and wrong, Right. I had one where, um, actually I'll say that later. So it feels like a kind of wisdom, right? The judge feels like, you know, this is good, this is bad, they shouldn't be doing that, I shouldn't be doing that, I'll stop doing that. So we feel it, it keeps us out of trouble, there's a kind of safety in the judge. But it's become so automatic, we're in the flow of it so much that we're like in a pinball machine, really, just pushed and pulled by these judgments and these comments that are always narrating what's happening. And it's become so familiar, as we've said, that we don't think they're judgments, right? They're the truth, or their observations. I'm just neutrally observing what's happening here and happen to know, you know, what, what the right thing is or what should be done in this situation. And so again, this is where our practice really has to come in and the willingness to look at what's happening in this kind of mind state to see the distortions, we call them whippalasas, where we distort and, and, you know, it's where actually the opposite is happening. And there's a humility in that, in the willingness to really question, what are we believing? What story are we telling ourselves about that person, about ourselves, about the situation? And really to challenge it. Sometimes we can feel that we're actually lost or bereft if we don't immediately have an opinion on something. And this culture and even our schooling has kind of indoctrinated that, right? What do you think now? And what's your answer to this? And, you know, did you like that movie? And it's like, you've got to have, everyone's got to write a review of something, you know, it's Yelp and Amazon and all of these things. It's, 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 it's just become endemic in our whole system. And so we find it hard just to let ourselves be in the immediacy of experience. We have to know this is good, this is bad, this is better than, worse than. Can we just be, again, in the simplicity, immediacy? And so this practice starts with that. Just landing here, as Temple was talking so beautifully last night and this morning about the simplicity of just the steadiness of attention and finding contentment there without having to have it be bigger or better or more or in comparison to someone else. To really, as I said, ground in this wish to be happy. That it's a valid human wish. The, the, the Dalai Lama says something like, happiness is the birthright of human beings, not something superficial. I remember when I was doing this practice and someone encouraged me to use this phrase in Metta for Self, and don't know if we've shared it yet, a number of you know it though, may I love and accept myself just as I am. May I love and accept myself just as I am. Not after the 10-point improvement program, not after 10 meta retreats, but now, like this, with all the imperfections. When I first heard that, I went, what? <laughs> now? No. <laughs> you know, what do you, you can't be serious. <laughs> but I said it, and I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it, you know, rolling your eye, but I said it. And at some point, something starts to land. 
something starts to shift. Because we see if we don't, it's a hell realm, literally. We're going to suffer. That's, I'm afraid to tell you, that's, there's no two ways about that. Love and accept yourself just as you are, or you will suffer. You don't have to add that phrase, but that's the truth. (laughs) And so, as I said, you can start to actually turn the attention back to this tendency of mind. Look at the thoughts. What are they saying? What's the impact in the body? And treat them just as they are. A blip of energy in the mind, a string of words in the mind. Actually um, work with them. And this practice, as I said, is one of the most powerful ways that I've seen to actually steep in this possibility. Some of you may have heard this story, because I often tell it on metta retreats, of my first experience of a metta retreat. I was in Heather's camp, (coughs) totally dismissive of metta. Who would ever want to spend days or weeks, you know, la-di-da, may I be happy. You know, it felt like you'd be living in a Hallmark card. You know, may every day and every way be better and better and, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows. And that was not me. But, of course, little, a minute amount of self-introspection, I realized that's probably what I needed the most. So I didn't just do a week retreat or a 10-day retreat. I headed off to IMS and signed up for six weeks of metta practice. So sublet the house, you know, airplane ticket, all the arrangements made to do six weeks of metta. And you start, you know, and you give yourself a lot of slack in the beginning, right? I'm just getting used to this. It's a new practice. It's hard. Days go by and going to see the teacher. How's it going? Okay. You know, it's okay. It's good. Good. Little bit of metta. It's kind of warm. Because it's a six-week retreat, we kind of stretch the, the categories out. So for me, it was two weeks with mis- myself and just the benefactor, day after day. And after about two weeks, I remember so clearly going into this interview with the same kind of report. It's okay, you know, keeping the phrases going. Phrases are good, phrases are going. Feeling, you know, not so much. I can't remember what I said. And I remember kind of saying, you know, I wonder if I should try that. And my teacher saying, yeah, that sounds good. Why don't you try that? Um, and I also remember very clearly down the stairs, out the d- front door, IMS, down to my walking path and mulling over the interchange. Ever done that after an interview? Mulling. What did he mean when he said, why don't you try that? And completely reshaping the tone of his voice and his words and his you know, face to be... To be why don't you try that, for God's sake? You know, maybe that will make a difference. And so that was what I was saying to myself as I went down to my walking path and just saying, what was I thinking? Six weeks of metta? This is hopeless. I'm hopeless. You know, I can never love. I've never loved. I'll never be lovable. You know, you know that feeling? I just wasn't doing walking metta. I was trudging, you know. Oh, and just this sense of desperation. And, you know, the school bus would go by. It's like, can I get on the school bus? <laughs> a plane would go by. It's like, how can I get a plane ticket? You know, anything to get out of there. I even have the thought, and I hate to tell you, that I'm sure you would never do this. I thought, can I fake it? Can I kind of pretend that I'm doing this for the next month? And, you know, they'll believe me. And so it was so painful to be in that space. And it was so familiar. It was like, you know, that uh, digging, 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 you know, digging the hole, digging the abyss. And then, you know, just like the story I think Nikki told about Sharon, something happened. I was, it was so familiar, that place. But I had that thought, you know, you could go there. You could wallow in this for hours days, you've got a month. (laughs) But the thought was, at some point you'll come out, because that always happens, right? You know, we kind of get ourselves together at some point. Something happens, something shifts. And the thought was, what would it take to get from here 
to the coming out without having to do that to yourself, without having to beat yourself up and, you know, just be in dukkha for all that time. And the next thought was, you'd have to accept that this is what your metta practice looks like. There's no puppies and rainbows. There's no golden light. You know, there's no ecstasy. It's just very simple and a little kind. That's all you got. Well, how about accepting that? That was one of the most significant moments of my retreat practice. And I wish I could say then, you know, the puppy dogs and rainbows and gold. It didn't happen. I just started walking, doing my practice. But because I was able to continue, guess what? You know, it did deepen. A lot supported by the deepening of concentration, that length of retreat. But that retreat was really transformative for me. But the deeper experiences of metta and acceptance that happened, and, you know, there's also a lot of tears and everything, because I was able to do that, because I was able to actually just say, this is what it looks like. This is all I've got. Again, if I didn't accept that, I was going to suffer, and I was not going to be able to continue. So this is... This practice finds a way to get to that place where we have to surrender and really see this is what it takes, this self-acceptance. I I wouldn't have even said self-love at that point, but it was self-acceptance, and it grew into that. So we start to look at what are the messages of not good enough, because that's what limits us. You know, I knew so many of mine, and, and to see why, why there's a hook in them, why they feel pleasant. For many of us, we've internalized that message that we're not good enough, and it just feels like the truth. So we're kind of, you know, the Dharma's in alignment with the truth. My truth is I'm, I'm not very worthy of anything, or I'm not lovable. And so there's just an alignment with that internalized message from we've gotten from family, from peers... One of mine was, I might be hopeless, but at least I know I'm hopeless. Not like those people who are so hopeless they don't even know they're hopeless. You know, it's like... Uh, it's another one of mine was, because I'm, you know, not good enough, don't know, you know, not bright enough, smart enough, not confident enough, it enabled me to hide. I didn't have to be the person who put up my hand or offered to take on a task or you know, took charge of something. So there was a safety, you know, that tatty old raincoat we put on that's so smelly and old, but it's familiar to us. And we sometimes, especially when we were young, we took up on the attitude of others because if we resisted or stood up for ourselves, we'd get even more hurt. And so we didn't have the defenses that we have now. And, you know, for many of us, there were a very sad, terrible forms of abuse that we've experienced. And the only way we knew was to submit and to take that on because we were young and defenseless, terrible situations. And so we internalize those attitudes of defensiveness, defenselessness. It's so confusing when we're young. There's so much we're trying to understand. And if we're hurt and harmed at that age, we take on that story of not being okay really painful. And sometimes just, you know, parents saying, you know, do more of that, less of that, you're too much this way, not enough that way. Why can't you be like your older sister? Why can't you be like, you know, John down the street? And we hear that message and we take it in. This practice refutes that, refutes all of that conditioning and says if we really want to grow on this path of practice, We have to land in that place of acceptance and okayness. And to really look at the messages that we tell ourselves, the stories. And again, the metaphrases just make this stark contrast. You know, and so much like, which do you want to believe? That I can be happy, may I be happy, or that I'm worthless, not okay? And I know it's not as simple as that, but... There's a way in which we do this practice, we see that choice that we can make. Choice towards kindness, choice towards acceptance. 
And a big part of it is being willing to feel how painful it is to have the closed heart, the judging, the separation, the contraction, to feel the pain. That's, as I said earlier, that's the beginning of the transformation. And then to hold it with compassion. May I hold this 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 pain, this contraction, this fear, this loneliness with kindness and tenderness. May I let it open and soften, be received into kindness. A lot of what we do is reparent on these retreats. I did a huge amount of inner child work on my meta retreats. Just that five-year-old that was so lost and fearful and shy and alone. We are the wise parent now. And this lonely child, frightened child that many of us are still relating to, still acting out of, can we integrate that, bring that into being? And really see this is not about blame or judging, but full and total acceptance, no part left out. Srinisagadatta, the Indian saint, says, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and distrust are grievous errors. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. What a beautiful metta wish. Make love of yourself perfect. And the other way it's we this judging voice operates is when we judge others. I was speaking a lot about judging ourselves. We use the mindfulness and the metta to see that patterning as well, because that's all it is. It's a pattern, it's a habit, it's a conditioning. We've created a world based on our sense of ourselves, our conditioning and our perceptions. That's how we create the world. When a sense of ourself is limited, as I've said, by fear, by habit, by neuroses, we necessarily distort how we view others and our ability, our sense of, of our ability to connect, to have empathy. So we need to understand that that process may be happening as we relate to others, especially as we're in this judging mode, that we may not understand. We often never understand another person's experience, why they're saying or doing the things that we're doing. We don't have the whole picture of what's going on. So always a bit of tentativeness or checking in, you know, seeing what's happening for ourselves. Because out of this isolation, the sense of constricted self, we have a sense of disconnection that leads to judging. The judging leads to a sense of isolation and to more disconnection and and a sense of separation. So this feedback loop gets created and it's really painful. And it's so deep. You know, again, this is not something that we've done consciously. It's both individual, it's from our family and our past. It's cultural. I'm reading this great book at the moment by Shaquille Chowdhury. He's a Canadian author on deep diversity. And why it's such a great book is he must be some kind of mindfulness practitioner because his main tool that he comes back to again and again in these issues of diversity, equity, and inequality are to use mindfulness to understand what's going on and to bring mindfulness to our perceptions and the unconscious bias that leads to this sense of separation, of othering, and of prejudice and racism that all of us live in and act, often act out of. And so he says about noticing personal contradictions. He says, all of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions are more successful in reducing bias. Meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes one with such discrepancies. So really using our mindfulness to understand how we create this sense of separation and bias 
the projections and the othering, that again, if we're not paying attention, it's just automatic, very deeply conditioned. So he has these great practices that he recommends to kind of bring more attention to how we create this sense of other, especially around racial differences. He says, it's called Carrots and Curiosity. He says, because the stereotype of the other is a generalization, when we encounter a member of a racial group different than our own, there is a tendency for our brain to register that, that person as a symbol of the group rather than see them as an individual. This does not happen for members of our own group, he says. Researchers have found that getting subjects to ask simple questions about vegetable preferences, as in, I wonder if this person likes carrots, helps in bias reduction. It appears that the power of curiosity can help humanize others so that we see them as unique individuals rather than as representatives of, of the group. And that's just kind of a sample of how he talks about using mindfulness, empathy, and connection to really understand how our mind is working. And he's particularly talking about how we do that, uh, you know, through differences that we see in appearance of racial identity, ethnic groups, you know, different sexual orientation, gender gender uh, identities. We, you know, so automatically create can create a sense of othering about that. But we can work in this way in any othering that we do. Anytime the mind is forming into judgments, a little curiosity. You know, you find your mind about someone. I wonder if they like carrots or beans, you know, and it just humanizes and and brings um, uh, more connection in. And that's in a little bit the way what we do with the metta practice. We're feeling into the other person. What's happiness like for them? I wonder what's safety feels like for them? What's well-being for them? It's the same kind of feeling into that we can do that breaks down these barriers is so helpful and we'll explore that particularly with the difficult person tomorrow. And so we have all these tools and we see that the metta really does that. It starts to humanize whoever we direct it to. That's its power. We feel more what unites us than divides us. Again, the Dalai Lama. You know, pe- people, when they meet him, they think he does something magical. He's got like these cities, these powers, but he doesn't. He says, when I meet someone, I look for what is common, what unites us, not what makes us different. And people, when they feel that in the way that he's able to do it, they feel like he's, he's greeting them as a long-lost friend and everyone falls in love with him. But it's just because he's finding that connection, finding that way in. He says, try to cultivate deep recognition of the equality of all beings, their potential to be free, their right not to suffer. Again, that sense of connection, that sense of the universality of our wish. And to also add just some simple, you know, these are, these are kind of the deeper or more profound ways to work with judging, but we also need the immediate fixes, and I don't know fixes isn't the right word, but just uh, skillful means. Uh, bring the humor in. You know, sometimes it's kind of funny if you look at what you're actually saying. Look at those socks. What are they thinking putting those socks? It's like, who cares about what socks someone is wearing? Jack Cornfield always says, count your judgments. Start as soon as you get up. And by the time you get to 552, you kind of realize there's just a program running here. You're not doing it. It's just happening. So count your judgments. Give your judging voice a persona. You know, I had one student who had a really strong judge and her persona was a stuffed purple dinosaur. And she just kind of talked to it, you know. Oh, you you know, your second grade teacher. Thanks, Mrs. Smith. I don't need your opinion right now. You know, feel what the judgments feel like. You can feel the contraction, the pain, especially here on retreat. Let yourself feel it. Don't just scoot over it. Don't believe them. But when they're there, feel the constriction. This can be a really red flag. When you feel a little bit the tightness here or here or here, what's the mind saying? What's its attitude right now? 
And just have that be um, a practice. Drop into the body so you don't keep telling the story. Joseph Goldstein often tells people um, this practice, when you have a judging thought, add to the thought, and you you have to do this every time, and the sky is blue. And it's kind of just like, yeah, so what, I think, is what he means. You know, da-da-da-da-da, and the sky is blue. But when I tried that practice, I'd say, yeah, the sky is blue, and that's true, damn true, it's, you know, they shouldn't have done that. So it didn't work for me. But again, on this one retreat at IMS, I was practicing, and he'd given that practice, but it wasn't working, but I, I knew I needed to do something. I was really suffering with a lot of judging thoughts. And at IMS, East Coast, Massachusetts, Barry, Massachusetts, they have, we have them here, but they're not so common, little chipmunks. You know what chipmunks are? These tiny, little tail, little stripes, and they just run around. Oh, sorry. They put nuts in their cheeks, and they're always busy. Anyway, so my practice was, every time I had a judging thought, I would say, and chipmunks are cute. And it was, you know, Oh, chipmunks. And it was just like, you know, distracting a two-year-old. Chipmunks, yeah, yeah, they're really cute. So for what it's worth, whatever your version of chipmunks are, try it, you know. And we see this is workable. This is not who you are. These thoughts, these judgments are not who you are. And we start to align more with these wishes, more with this capacity for well-being. That is what we're here for. That's the purpose and the meaning of a human life. And to start to see we do have a choice about choosing kindness rather than judging. As the Dalai Lama said, choose kindness whenever possible. It's always possible. Affirming our wish to be happy, aligning with what's really for our well-being, and not giving strength, power to these kinds of thoughts. And so that's what I mean when I say this whole practice is about acceptance and kindness here on retreat and how we live our lives. So I want to finish with a letter that someone wrote to me at the end of a previous Metta retreat. Dear Sally, you interviewed me at noon on the next to last day of a recent Metta retreat. It had It had had no impact on me up to that point, so far as I could tell, and I was disappointed. That puts it nicely. Disgruntled is perhaps a more complete term, description. But not long after I left the interview room, I noticed that my attitude towards my fellow retreatants had changed. Until that moment, I had formed a critical opinion of each person my eyes fell on. But now my attitude was different. I wished each of them well. When my eyes fell on someone, I would send that person my good wishes, not to say love. In short, the transformation I had hoped for, but knew I could not elicit or count on, had taken place. This mood or feeling continued for several days after the retreat. I continued to say metaphrases silently to myself as I go through my day, and I continue to feel more kindly towards others than I did before the retreat, even if I am no longer as blissed out as I was during the last 24 hours of the retreat. So you never know when that judging mind is going to take a break and metta and kindness can be what we're blessing ourselves and others with. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
So again, thank you for your kind attention. About half hour for walking and the last set of the day with the chanting at the end. Sometimes on a retreat we get into habits, not just of the mind but of the body and it's like, nope, bedtime or whatever it is you do. I can't imagine what it is you do now apart from practice. But anyway, um, maybe tonight's different. Maybe, you know, the fresh, cool air little bit of energy, and tonight's the night you come if you haven't come before. It's a lovely way to end the day. Chant, raise our voices together in the words and the practice of metta. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.